The God of Christianity is both exalted and personal. This is unique because in most other religions, the focus is on a God that is either exalted or knowable, but not both. Take Islam, for instance. Islam has an exalted God. To Muslims, Allah is great. He is awesome. He is sovereign. But He is pretty well unknowable in a real and a personable way. In most other religions, the God may be knowable in some way, but is far from being great and awesome and exalted. Now, there are a lot of ways that this difference plays out in how religions act and how religions kind of perform their religious duties, but none so dramatic as in the life of prayer. In religions where God is exalted but unknowable, prayer is usually consistent, but it's a duty. It is something you are to do because you're supposed to do it. There is little to no expectation that the God you're praying to is actually going to do anything. There is little to no expectation that this time of prayer will draw you closer to your God and give you a better understanding of who He is and make you to know how much He cares for you in any way. In this type of religion, prayer is something that is done to appease the God, but it has nothing to do to draw you closer to the God and doesn't really bring about any change as a result of the prayer. My mom worked with a lady at our high school, and they were talking about prayer. And she told mom that you don't pray for God to do things, because that would imply that God actually gets involved in the everyday life of people. when that's just not something God does anymore. The mom asked her what was the point of praying, and she said, we pray because we're supposed to. That's it. God was exalted, but He was not really personable. Didn't really get involved. The God of Christianity is high and exalted. He is also personally knowable. The the awesome God of Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 is the same God that came to earth and took on human flesh and became our Redeemer. The same God calls on us to know Him and to have a life-altering, genuine relationship with Him. And this same God actively works in the world He created and for the people that He has redeemed. What this means for us on a practical level is that every time we pray, we are having a genuine encounter with the great and the awesome God of the Bible. And that we have, as His children, an open invitation to go to Him any time that we want. To spend time with His presence. To enjoy Him. To have an encounter with Him. And to know that He hears and He cares about what's going on in our life. Now this knowledge should stir our hearts. And cause our prayers to take on entirely new significance. It should cause us to to purge from our lives any thoughts of praying to check a box. Or any thoughts that prayer is a burden to be borne. And yet, if we're honest, we would all say that there are times when prayer does become a burden. Typically what happens is prayer first becomes a routine. And that routine then becomes a rut. Prayer does become a box that we check. We're supposed to do it before we start our day. So we say our prayer, and then we go on about our life. 
And in this situation, if it continues in that way, prayer eventually becomes a burden. Because nobody really likes to do something just because they're supposed to do it. Nobody likes to do something that doesn't seem to have any real benefits or practical application for our lives. In a lot of ways at this time, prayer will become a double burden. On the one hand, since it is a burden to pray, we don't pray. Which unfortunately, it leads to guilt. And there's a burden involved with that. And since it is a burden to pray, we do pray. But we're not viewing it as an encounter with God. It's just something we're working our way through, that we're checking our box so that we can appease our God. And then we get up feeling like we have wasted our time. And that's part of our lives we'll never get back. And so it is a burden. So we live our lives, if we're not careful in this time, torn between trying to pray enough to keep from feeling guilty and the gnawing suspicion that prayer doesn't really work and really is a waste of our time. So how do we move past that? Today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that I hope will help us to move past this and to move into the kind of prayer life that we, we all as believers in Jesus long to have. Open your Bible to Matthew 7 and 7 is where we're going to start should be on page 738 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew 7 and 7. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? The title of the message this morning is Travailing and Prevailing in Prayer. Let's pray. Father, we love You. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And God, we all want to have prayer lives that are meaningful. I mean, God, we don't want to just check a box. We don't want to feel like we're just doing what we're supposed to do. We want to meet with you. Lord, we want our time of prayer to stir our hearts to love you more. We want our time of prayer and our time with you to to transform us so that, Lord, like Moses, we can come from your presence and we would just almost be glowing with your glory because of our time with you. Lord, we do want to see answers to our prayers. People that we pray to be saved, we want to see them saved. Those that we pray that they would be delivered from sin, we want to see them delivered. Father, we we do want to see Your hand at work in this world in response to our prayer and to know that our God does hear and our God does care and our God does get involved. So, Lord, in light of our desire today, let your Holy Spirit come and take this word and make it living and active for us. 
Lord, it's easy to fall into a rut and a routine in prayer. It's easy to do what we're supposed to do and move on. Help us to overcome that today. Let your Holy Spirit come and let Him soften our hearts and prepare our ears to receive what you have for us. Father, let us take it and apply it to our lives and begin to pray in the ways that Jesus talks about. And as we do, let us know that we're meeting with you. Let us know that you're there with us in that time. Give us a renewed passion for prayer. Give us a renewed love for you. And God, as we pray, let us see your hand at work and let us be in awe of the greatness of a God who hears and cares. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you once said. Let it be your words and not mine. Guard our hearts and minds in this time that we would be focused upon you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm fairly confident this passage is familiar to most of us. Yet in this very familiar and fairly short passage, we learn a great deal about prayer. And there were two ideas that stood out to me as I studied it this week. The first was on the way that we pray. I ask, seek, and knock. And to me, this is a picture of, of progression, but it's also a picture of, of earnestness. Right? It's not, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, but this is not, Lord bless us, food nourishment to my body, help me to have a good day in Jesus' name, amen. Right? This isn't the, the quick hit on the way to get in the car. This isn't the recording that we can sometimes play. This is spending the time pouring out of our hearts, truly, passionately seeking the Lord in prayer. And then there's also certainty. Ask and it, it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. Everyone who asks, and if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Heavenly Father? So there's a certainty we will... God will answer our prayers. But the answer comes at the end of the asking, seeking, and knocking. Right? So the way that we pray, it really, in a lot of ways, will determine the results that we receive. So the, to put it another way, those who travail in prayer, prevail in prayer. Those who travail in prayer, prevail in prayer. It's one thing to say, I believe in the power of prayer. But it's something else entirely to pray in a way that demonstrates that I believe in the power of prayer. This passage shows us four ways to pray that demonstrate that we believe in the power of prayer. Four ways to travail in prayer so that we can prevail in prayer. Number one is pray passionately. It should stand out to us that the words Jesus uses are all action words. 
Ask, seek, and knock. Should cause us to understand that prayer is active and not passive. And to me, as I look at it, it seems to be a progression. That we go from the the least active to the most active. You ask, that's easy enough. Then you begin to look, and then you begin to knock and just go and, and do things. But Jesus seems to be raising the issue of of intensity, that the more that we long for something, the more intense our prayers will be, that it may initially start as just kind of asking, Lord, would you do this? Would you work here? Would you help in that? But then it becomes a burden. So we begin to to seek maybe in Scripture. Does God do that? Do we see other instances of that? We begin to try to see how can I help? What do I need to do? We're we're really getting involved in the whole process. And what I see in this is that if we, if we only half-heartedly pray, and if we only pray just once or twice a week, we probably shouldn't expect much from our prayer life. We probably shouldn't expect that it will be more than a routine. We probably shouldn't expect that it will ever get us out of the rut. But that if we want it to be more than a routine, we want to get out of the rut, that we have to pray passionately. Right? Prevailing prayer is passionate prayer. And passionate prevailing prayer requires us to, to ask, seek, not to, to be involved and, and really work in our prayers. And it can sound odd to say work in your prayer. But Scripture teaches us that prayer can be work. Paul tells us about a man named Epaphras who was one of the Colossians. He was a servant of Christ. And notice what he did. He always labored fervently for them in prayer. Labored fervently. Always labored fervently. I mean, can you say that about your prayer life? Think about the the one thing that is the most burden on your heart right now. Do you always labor fervently for that in prayer? For your marriage, do you always labor fervently to have a strong and a healthy marriage? Do you always labor fervently for your children to know Christ and to live for Him? Do you always labor fervently... So that you can be a light in the world that demonstrates the goodness and the greatness of Almighty God. Epaphras always labored fervently. He didn't just say, oh God, help those people at the church in Colossae. Amen. The word that is translated as laboring is where the word, our English word, agonize comes from. According to one of my Greek dictionaries, this word carries with it the idea of struggling, fighting, and striving. Like you're competing for a prize, fighting with an enemy, or endeavoring to accomplish something. Man, what a picture of prayer. I mean, is that a a picture of your prayer life? Do you struggle, fight, And strive like you're competing for a prize? Do you 
struggle, fight and strive like you're fighting an enemy? Do you struggle, fight and strive like you're endeavoring to accomplish something? We should. Prayer is a form of spiritual warfare. Satan will absolutely attack and discourage you. If we're praying passionately, sincerely, consistently, it will feel like struggling and wrestling at times. If we're to have prevailing prayers, we must not let our prayer lives be filled with cold, passionless prayers. And if we do, we should not be surprised to find that we have powerless prayers. We can overcome that. We can determine that we will be a people of passionate prayer. We can determine that we will be sure that our prayer is not just checking a box. We can be sure and say that my prayer, it will not be an afterthought. It will be a priority in my life. I will schedule a time when I will meet with my God and I will meet that time. We can choose to pour out our hearts and our souls to God. We can choose to cry out to the Lord, pour out our anguish, our hurts, our fears, our concerns. We can choose to be like Jacob who says, I'll not let you go until you bless me, O Lord. But that kind of prayer requires a commitment from us. It requires a commitment of time. And I'm not going to tell you how long to pray. I, I can't. I don't find in Scripture where you have to pray an hour before it's really passionate prayer. What I will say is the commitment of time will have to be however long it takes. And that will mean on a lot of occasions I can't say, well, well I'm going to pray for 15 minutes. And then at 15 minutes, no matter what, I'm done. Sometimes passionate prayer takes longer than that. Sometimes passionate prayer is shorter than that. I mean, it's not a matter of saying I'll pray for an hour. That's a box. If you say, well, I'm going to pray for an hour every day, you're making a box that you're going to check. It will be a burden. It will be a routine. It will be a rut. But if you say, I'm going to pray till I know I've met with God. I'm going to pray till I know I've poured out my heart and I have cast all of my cares and my concerns upon Him. That's time. Can't tell you how much time. It's however long it takes for you to to know that you have prayed through. There has to be a commitment to sanctification because that kind of prayer changes us. If we are going to spend time in the presence of a holy God, we will not be the same. I cannot look at my life and say I am content with my level of devotion. I am content with my level of generosity. I am content with my values and my priorities and my attitudes and my actions. And I don't want to change at all. When I begin to pray passionately, Jesus is going to begin to mess with all of those things in my life. He will rearrange my values and my priorities, my morality, my everything. There has to be a willingness to let Him change me. Have His way in my life. There has to be a commitment of emotional involvement. Agonize in prayer. 
I mean, if we really are passionately praying for a person, for an event, for an issue, it's going to be a burden on our heart. There has to be a willingness to maybe let our hearts ache. There has to be a willingness to cry over the the lostness of humanity, to cry over the brokenness in someone's life, to cry over the destruction of a marriage or a family. There is an emotional involvement for fervent, passionate prayer. Have you ever prayed that way? Do you regularly pray that way? That is how we are all meant to pray. This is travailing in prayer. And travailing prayer is prevailing prayer. Those who travail in prayer prevail in prayer. So we want to pray passionately. We also want to pray persistently. Depending on what translation you have, the idea of persistence may not be immediately evident. If you have a a New Living translation, it's probably the best that shows this, this in there. And it says something like, keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. Where my New King James just says, ask and seek and knock. Now the reason... For this has to do with the wording of the Greek. And I'm not a Greek scholar by any means, but I can read a commentary like a champ. And one commentary explained that the Greek words used here, it pictures persistence. Right? It, it is a continuing tense. So when he says ask, he's not saying ask once and be done. He, he's not saying seek once and be done. He's not saying knock once and be done. The, the wording that Matthew uses as he writes this down is ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and, and keep on knocking until the answer comes. Right? We are to keep on going in that prayer for this event, for this person, for this issue, until we get an answer from God. From what I can see in Scripture, I think there are two primary reasons that God calls on us to be persistent in prayer. One is that persistence expresses humble dependence on God. Going to God and asking for His help reminds us that we depend on Him. It is a humbling thing to be constantly reminded of our dependence on anyone, even God. Independence is something as Americans that we greatly value. Independence is one of the the first desires that we have as we grow up. I mean, think about as a teenager... Think about teenagers. I mean, if there is one thing that every teenager in America wants, it is for their parents to stop treating them like a child. They want their independence. They want to do their own thing and prove to you they can do it and they do it well and they don't need you as much as they once did. It starts at a young age, it continues. But that desire for independence, it doesn't stop because we grow up. Instead, it just works itself out in different ways. Think back to when you were first saved, when you first truly came to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. How often did you pray? How aware were you of the fact that you depended on God to live the Christian life? To meet your needs, to do 
what needed to be done. How often, when you were first saved, and you started looking at Scriptures and looking at the things it says, like, turn the other cheek, deny yourself, take up your cross. Did you read that and say, oh, oh God, there's just no way I can do this on my own. Help me, Lord. Live for You. But how many of us do that today? How many of us pray as much now as we did then? How aware are we today of our dependence on God as we were then? How often do we look at Scripture and read its demands and say, I, I know in myself I can't. Oh God, help me to live for you like you want. What happened? What changed? It wasn't that we got a lock on it. right? It's not that we've all arrived and we're now entirely sanctified and we don't have those same struggles. The issue is that we, we grew up and we became independent. We began to think we could do it. We could handle it. We've got a lock on it. But God requiring us to pray and keep on praying it's one way that He reminds us that no matter how independent we think we are, we still need Him. And we will always need Him. And this works to break our sinful pride and our false feelings of self-sufficiency. Persistence expresses humble dependence on God, but persistence also reveals faith in God. Think about this. I was thinking about this like praying for a lost person to be saved. Imagine if today at the end of the service you, you picked one person in your life that you knew didn't know Jesus and you prayed for them to be saved. And sometime this week they came up to you and said, Hey, I know that you go to church and you know Jesus. Can you tell me how to be saved? And then you led them to the Lord and they came to church and they were just committed their lives to Christ after that. Wouldn't we immediately begin to pray for basically every lost person that we knew to be saved? Sure, yeah, we'll save them and them and them and them. But what happens when we pray for several years for the same person to be saved? What happens when we pray and we pray and we pray and there's not a change? Do we still believe God can save? Do we still believe God is bigger than whatever strongholds in their mind keeping them away? Do we still believe that God can and will reach down and, and draw them out of the darkness of sin and into the light of Christ? We may say it, but the only way that we really show that we really believe that is by our persistence in prayer, continually praying, God, I don't know why you haven't answered, but I believe you are the only help and the only hope there is. I read a story about a man by the name of George Mueller. And I wish time would permit me to tell you about George Mueller. But he was a, a man of great faith. Started orphanages with nothing. Just basically believing God would provide. He never sent out like a letter asking for money. When there was a need, he just prayed. And there are stories of like there not being food for the orphans. And them sitting down and blessing the food that they didn't have. And a doorbell ringing or somebody knocking at the door bringing food for the children for that night. They lived totally by faith. Never once did he ever ask for a dollar or a donation of any sort. He just prayed. So Mueller 
had a burden for a man to be saved. And he prayed for this person for like 15 or 20 years. The man was no closer to coming to Christ than on the day he was when Mueller started praying. So someone asked Mueller if he really thought God was going to answer this prayer and save this person. And Mueller responded by saying, absolutely. Because God would not have let this guy remain a burden on his heart if he wasn't going to save him. Mueller prayed and Mueller died and never saw the man saved. Years after Mueller's death or sometime after Mueller's death, he finally came to Christ. Mueller never saw the answer to his prayer until that man reached heaven where Mueller was. But he believed and so he kept praying. That's persistence in prayer. That's persistence that demonstrates only God can save. That's persistence that demonstrates faith that God can and God will. Are our prayers marked by this kind of persistence? Or do we become easily discouraged when no, prayer, when no answer comes immediately and give up on praying? Persistent prayer is travailing prayer. And those who travail in prayer prevail in prayer. Thirdly, we want to pray passionately, pray persistently, pray expectantly. Pay careful attention to the wills. Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who seeks, finds. Everyone who knocks, it will be opened. These are statements of of certainty. Promises that God will answer when we pray. And these are tremendous promises from Jesus. And I want to ask, I, I mean, when you pray, do you expect that God will answer? Do you expect... That God will hear and do something because you have prayed. When you pray for something, are you really convinced that your God hears your prayers and will actually get involved in human affairs to answer your prayers? Sadly, many Christians would say no to that question. They aren't really convinced that God hears their prayer. They aren't really convinced that God will intervene in human affairs to answer their prayers. And I think there are basically two reasons for this. Some aren't convinced that God hears or cares. Probably not that He hears, but more that He just doesn't care. God just doesn't care about the stuff I'm praying about. He heard me, but it wasn't important to Him. If this is you, I want you to stick with me because we'll talk about this more at the last point. But others aren't convinced that God can do something. They're just not convinced that God can really save that person. God can really restore that marriage. God can really do anything about what's going on in this situation. And both of those are ultimately a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith in who God is. 
And it's a lack of faith in what God can do. And a lack of faith, whether it's in God's concern or whether it's in God's power, will kill our prayers. I mean, if I constantly go to Scott to ask him to help me and I don't think he cares, eh, whatever, I, I don't know what you said. I'm going to quit going and asking for help. If I go to Scott and ask for help and he can't help me, continually can't help me, I'll quit going to him because he can't do anything about it. If I don't believe God cares, I won't pray long. If I don't believe God can, I won't pray long. Because what's the point? And that lack of faith, it will eventually kill our prayer life. But there is a way to overcome it. Read your Bible. I know you think that's way, way too simple. But I am a simple guy. Scripture is God's revelation of Himself, of His will, and the ways that He works in the world. And faith comes by hearing and hearing By the word of God. If we want our faith to grow. We need to be in God's word. I mean that is. It's never a matter of mustering up more faith. Making ourselves believe more. We can't even do that. You can't make yourself believe more. That's not a real thing. That's like saying I'm going to make myself love more. I mean if you hate somebody. Deep in your heart. And I said I want you to love them. And you said okay. I love them. Does it change anything? No, it doesn't. You can't flip a switch and go from hate to love like that. Neither can you flip a switch and go from doubts to faith. There has to be something outside of you that intervenes in you to stir, to create, to strengthen faith. And the only thing that has that power Is the word of God. That's it. If we're not in the word. We shouldn't be surprised. Our faith is weak. And limited. And when you read the Bible. Let me give you just some some stories. To read. To reaffirm your confidence in God's power. Read read creation in Genesis 1 and 2. I mean what what a great story. There's nothing. And then God decides there should be stuff. And so He says, let there be stuff. And the stuff is there. I mean, there's no, there's no struggle. There, there's no taking stuff that's already there and refining it. There's just like God and nothing until God says, let there be. And now there's everything. How awesome is a God who can speak the world and everything there is into existence. Right? Read Exodus 5-12. through 12. God demonstrates in that His power over nature, over idols, and a massive political empire to free His people from slavery. Right? Whatever needs to be done, He does. He makes water turn to blood. He makes the daylight go dark. He makes lice come up from the ground. He brings the sand to cause boils. He makes frogs to come up. I mean, He just does all kinds of things. And He does it just by saying, this is what's going to be done. How powerful is that God? Read the book of Joshua. 
God makes walls fall down. He makes the sun to stand still. He rains down hailstones to kill people. And in the middle of a battle where they're swinging swords and they're this close to each other, He hits with sniper-like precision to kill the bad guys but spares His own people. How awesome is that God? Read the Gospels. Read about a God who cares enough about us that He becomes one of us. And He lives on this earth. And He does all kinds of amazing miracles. And then He dies for our sins. Not His, but ours. And then He rises from the dead. That's a great, that is an awesome God. That is a, an intense amount of care for your life and mine. And read the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation, you say, well, I don't understand it. You don't have to understand it. You read Revelation, what you've got to get is God is awesome. The God who spoke all things into existence decides that time has reached an end. And so he does, and he brings about the end of time. And he causes cataclysmic natural disasters. He overthrows wicked nations. He casts Satan into a lake of fire. And then he ushers in eternity. All without a struggle. I mean, even when there's this great big battle between the forces of Satan and the forces of God, it's not a knock-down, drag-out UFC battle. The Bible says He destroys him with the words of His mouth. When God decides it's time, He just goes, it's over. And whoosh, He wins. It's an awesome God. And as we read these stories, if we can read them with even the smallest amount of faith that they're real, that these things really happened. I mean, just if I can get a mustard seed that yes, God did these things. Then we would come to two conclusions. God has unlimited power and God has unlimited resources. God can do anything He wants to do. And God can do anything through anyone that He wants to do it through. Thoughts like that give us faith. Thoughts like that cause us to pray persistently. Cause us to pray expectantly. Expecting that God will do something. I do want to point out something that I don't, I hope does not come across as a wet blanket to, because I'm like, God will answer. God is awesome. And now I'm going to say, but God's answer isn't always yes. Right? The promise that, that it, ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open, isn't that, that if I pray for a, a new car, a new car is going to be miraculously given to me. Right? It, it's not a prayer that God is always going to do exactly what I ask. Right? Because God always answers. But sometimes, sometimes the answer is yes. He does exactly what we pray, exactly the way that we pray it. Sometimes God says, not right now. Because right now is not the right time for the yes. And then sometimes, sometimes God says no. And what we have to realize is, no is an answer. 
It may not be the answer we want, but it is an answer. And before we try to say, well, that's a cop-out, right? God says, no, that's a cop-out. He didn't really answer. Does anyone in your life always say yes to you? Is there anyone in your life that you always say yes to? I mean, is there anyone that when they come to you, no matter what they ask, you always say yes and you always do exactly what they ask you to do? None of us would have. Nobody has that person in their life. Sometimes we say yes. Sometimes we say not right now. And sometimes we say no. Well, if, if I can say that to people, why can't my God say that to me? And if I'm okay with you saying that to me, why would I not be okay with my God saying that to me? And to be honest, I'm glad God doesn't always say yes. Because I look back over my life at things I prayed for, for God to do. And if He had said yes to those things, my life would be vastly different and not better. When I was in the army, I had a slot to go to ranger school. I had to have a physical to take. And my platoon sergeant said I couldn't go take the physical because I had to go do something else that day. That was probably the first time in my life I had ever really fervently prayed. I mean, all I had ever wanted to... I joined the army to be a ranger. Not to go do the detail he was sending me on. And I prayed. And God said no. And I had to go on the detail and I missed my school. And I ended up getting out of the army for it. When I got out, I was deeply, deeply discouraged by that. And then one day, a family moved to Fort Gibson and brought this really good-looking girl with them. And my life has never been the same. Can I tell you, God's no on that day and that request was the best thing that ever happened to me. I am so glad God said no to me on that day. God says no, and that's a legitimate answer. But that doesn't mean we don't pray expectantly. Because no is still an answer. Our our prayers marked by an expectation that God will answer, even if it's no. Are your prayers filled with faith, God's unlimited power, and God's unlimited resources? Expectation in prayer It leads to travailing prayer. And those who travail in prayer, prevail in prayer. So we pray passionately, persistently, expectantly, and then confidently. Some of the doubts that we have is whether or not God cares. And Jesus answers this. Verse 9, he says, What man is there among you who if a son asks for bread will give him a stone? Ask for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Right? We can pray confidently because we can be assured that God hears and cares about our prayers because God is our Heavenly Father. Right? And, and confident. It not only gives us the confidence that He hears, but that He will do what is best for us. And Jesus explains the idea of God doing what's best by saying, you know what, if you, if someone, if a child asks for 
a fish, you're not going to give him a serpent. Or if he asks for bread, he's not going to give him a stone. Right? If we as human parents, if our kid asks us for something they need, we're not going to give them something that would harm them. We're going to do what is in their best interest. We will give them what they need. Now, as a dad, this really strikes home to me. Right? I love my daughters. And because I love them, I want to, to give them things. I want to do things for them. But most of all, I want to do what is in their best interest. Now, there have always been times where they don't understand that. All that they saw was that I didn't do what they wanted me to do. or I didn't give them what they wanted me to give them. But since I know more than they do, although they will disagree, there are times I don't let them have what they want. There are times I don't give them what they want because I have their best interests at heart. I'm not just out to make them happy. I'm out to do what is best. That's the picture here. We can pray persistently, passionately, confidently, expectantly because our Father always has our best interests at heart. That's why when God says not right now, we can say, That's why when God says no, we can say, okay. Because He's not saying no out of meanness. He's not saying no out of laziness. He's not saying no out of selfishness. He is saying these things because He knows what is best. And He is giving us what He knows to be best. I love verse 11. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who love Him? If I desire to do what is right for my children, and and I'm flawed and imperfect and limited and often can be lazy, have wrong priorities, If I still, with all my limitations and all my failures, I still want to do what's good for my kids, how much more does my perfect heavenly Father want to do what is best for us? Knowing this, it gives us confidence in prayer. That we can pray for anything all the time. Our God hears And our God cares. And our God will answer in His time in the way that He knows is best. Confidence in prayer leads to travailing prayer. And those who travail in prayer prevail in prayer. But I do want to, before we close, I want to point out, before we can pray, much less pray passionately, persistently, expectantly, and confidently. We must be saved. Prayer is not talking to a genie that we hope will give us what we want. It's not finding the right incantation to say that forces God to act in a certain way. Prayer is talking to our Heavenly Father. And before God is my Father, I have to be adopted into His family through faith in Jesus. 
Apart from faith in Jesus, there is no relationship with God as my Father that gives us access to God through prayer. Everything starts with faith in Jesus. If you have never personally made the decision to receive Jesus as your Savior, that is what you must do today. That is the first step you must take. Everything will always rise and fall on what we do with Jesus. If you have never believed that He died for your sins, if you have never called upon Him to save you, that is your first decision, your first step today. If you have already done that, then we're going to use this time for you to pray. Just pray. It would be silly for us to spend all this time talking about prayer and then not give us time to actually pray. So if you're already a disciple of Jesus, you you pray about whatever you need to pray about this morning. If you have never trusted in Christ as your Savior, you use this time. And you surrender to Christ and you receive Him as your Savior. Let's bow our heads. Let's have a time of prayer.